high-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of December 14th. Coming up on today's show... Take two on the Codemasters sale. Play your classic computer games the right way. With a control pad? How Commander Keen changed PC gaming. And Nintendo Land gets an opening date. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. It was only a few weeks ago, John, that we were talking about Codemasters and a deal that appeared to be pretty much done. Take-Two Interactive were absorbing the famous British studio into their portfolio, but stop press, guess who's come along to spoil the party? Of course, it's Electronic Arts. Bulldozer in their way into talks and putting in a better offer. The rumoured offer that they've made is $1.2 billion, and with a company value of $30 billion, EA have got plenty of cash to splash around should Take-Two Interactive make a counteroffer of which there's no sign yet. It's looking like this is going to go through, but we said exactly the same about Take-Two. So who knows? Now, EA are not unique in assimilating studios. That's the way of the business world, and video games are no different. But over the years, there has been an increasingly uh, ill-feeling, I guess, from gamers when EA get their teeth into our favorite studios. How do you feel about Codemasters becoming part of the EA family, John? Well, you know, EA is run just like any other publicly traded company. They are all designed first and foremost to maximize profit for shareholders. That's the type of language that sends a, a chill running down the spine of, oh, yeah. of all of all video game players. But that's that's the facts of the business. You know, uh, we can definitely expect all of the macro trends in game development to continue with Codemasters games. You know, annual sequels microtransactions, all your favorite things, uh, an emphasis on online multiplayer experiences that they might be able to capture with some sort of recurring revenue stream. Though, to be honest, with the Codemaster Studio basically hinging on, you know, the Dirt franchise, the Grid franchise, and F1, um, these games do all this stuff already. So I, I don't think we'll see much of a change in this case. Right, right. So you think it'd be business as usual as far as you're concerned, John? Yeah, I mean, it's not as if Codemasters are like a two-person team working in a bedroom. You know, they're, they're already in major studio territory as it is. Uh, this acquisition will just introduce some new, you know, corporate overlords. Sure, sure. I mean, there's always a fear for me that when a studio gets swallowed up by another, that it will be stripped of value, namely the the franchises and brands that they want. They're the things with value. value. The teams behind them often will be dumped, and the games that you love they you know they, they exist if it's worth that studio's while but they lose their identity sometimes because they become an exercise in bean counting but as you said codemasters aren't a small studio it's not two guys in a bedroom it's not like a quirky indie studio has been picked up and um you know it doesn't hinge on its founder's creativity anymore so I'd hazard to guess that it's actually been a while since the founding brothers, the Darling brothers, have been actively <laughs> programming Cody's games. I, I yeah, don't know. They're, they're retired on some tropical island yeah, somewhere, I'm sure. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. And um, dirty words when it comes to EA are, of course, microtransactions. But as you said, these already exist, for example, in the Formula One series that Codemasters produced. They're already doing it. But I do have a personal grudge with EA simply because of what they did to um, a favorite studio of mine, which was Origin Systems. 
Uh, they were one of my favorite developers, Richard Garriott and his brother, Robert, ran it. Um, specifically, they did the Ultima series. So this was a series of RPGs that took a good four to five years to develop with each release, with each game. And when EA bought the studio, it didn't really fit with their cycle of annual sports game releases. You know, mm-hmm. it, it released mm-hmm. the last two games in the series before they were ready to go out. And that still smarts for me. They kind of ruined the series for me a little bit. And I'm sure there are plenty of people with a similar story about a similar studio that they love. It's gone the way of EA. But um, yeah, when you look at Codemasters franchises, the Formula One license fits with EA and that cycle, that release cycle. I think EA even owned the F1 license themselves 20 years or so back. I'm sure EA were releasing Formula One games for a short Mm -hmm. period. So they're no stranger to that. Games like Dirt even Micro Machines suit an annual release. So I'm not as concerned about this takeover as some others seem to be. Um, can you think of any game studios, John, that you loved that went to EA? Can you remember what became of them or what games were made? Well, I don't think all EA acquisitions have ended in complete disaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the the early 90s when EA took over Bullfrog. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we got some all-time classics like Syndicate and Theme Park. So it's not as if, you know, they, they, they forced them to start producing sports games. But I think whenever you do have these, these corporate overlords, there's going to be an increase of ill will on the studio level, on the programmer level, because what you do is uh, oftentimes you introduce a level of middle management that doesn't necessarily care about the art of making games as much as they care about the art of the bottom line and getting things done on time or even, you know, ahead of schedule, as you mentioned with the, with the Ultima series. So, and of course, when that happens, the people who can flee, they will. And uh, that's what happened with Bullfrog. Uh, Quite a few of that team went on to form Lionhead Studios. So, Uh, it's possible now, though, that you have executives that might actually have grown up playing video games and, you know, it's in they might be more sympathetic to developers, although, you know, I'm sure that these executives will be most sympathetic to profits. So who knows, Neil? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean to tell me that electronic arts aren't all about the arts? half of their name is probably accurate (laughs) well it looks like it's pretty much a done deal but um you know we said that about take two buying out cody so watch this space it's not over until the check is cashed by codemasters and we'll keep you updated on any more twists and turns in the saga but if you'd like to share your memories of ea taking over your favorite studios then head over to our subreddit and join the discussion all of the links are in the show notes Neil, you and I are different. Uh, We may share the same love for the Amiga and minimalist hairstyles, but we come from very different backgrounds. You grew up with Micros, the Beeb, the Speccy, and I grew up, uh, apart from the Atari computer at the very beginning, I was all about the consoles. I was 100% dyed-in-the-wool Nintendo fanboy. And those early experiences shape us through the rest of our lives. Uh, And I mean in the most important ways, like how you prefer to control your classic games. Well, if you're a fish out of water like me and you love classic computers, though you grew up playing with consoles, there may be a controller out there just for you. Uh, Protovision, publishers of the universally lauded game Sam's Journey, are developing a controller called the Protopad, and they want it to be, quote unquote, the best joypad of all time. I guess if you're marketing a product, that's how you do it. (laughs) Now, Neil, before we go any further, I'm curious about something. Did you ever, ever consider using a joypad with your Spectrum C64 or Amiga? 
or Amstrad. Let's not forget the Amstrad. Oh, I can't forget the Amstrad. I can't forget. (laughs) The joypad was for player two on my micros because I Mm. wouldn't have the joystick. It was a competition (laughs) pro joystick was top of the tree for me. I couldn't get on get couldn't get on with games with pads, um, and that's not really because of the pads themselves. It's because I, I was actually fine using them on a console, but a lot of the micro games adopted that up for jump control scheme, and that was painful on a joypad. Um, sure, sure. You know, or I had a football game that I used to play goal or kickoff to, and one of the moves was to flick the joystick back in the opposite direction to lob the ball down the pitch, and that was virtually impossible to pull off on a joypad it would turn into more of a rolling motion on the mm-hmm. joypad than the flick back. So it was joystick all the way for me. But um, tell me about this proto pad, John, the, the greatest joypad of all time. Sell it to me. Well, it, it kind of resembles, it kind of resembles a black super Nintendo controller. Okay. If, if I'm going to be honest, it looks exactly <laughs> like a black super Nintendo controller, <laughs> but you know, they've built in a few handy features that give it some extra functionality. One of the buttons on the joypad will automatically be configured to the up button, which eliminates the inconvenient up for jump mechanic that you just mentioned. Mm. Um, It's fully compatible out of the box for C64 games that already use two buttons from the factory, which I didn't realize there were C64 games that did this. But I guess Double Dragon and Robocop 2 were, you know, out of the box compatible with two buttons. Yeah. they don't say this, but I'm assuming that this means that two-button Amiga games like Lionheart will work just fine, too. Um, you can also program the con- uh, the controller to assign any buttons and directions to any buttons you choose. So you can set things up just how you like. Um, and the best thing of all is that this is a CIA chip uh, friendly device. Uh, unlike all the unfortunate souls that fried their C64s by plugging in a Mega Drive controller, you're okay to hot swap and generally just mash on all the buttons in any way you like. So, Neil, have you had a chance to look at the protopad? What do you What do you think of it? Is it something you might be into? Well, yeah, you've you've addressed my up to jump concerns there. And um, interesting about the C64 with two button games. I think the two button C64 games became more popular with the release of the. I say more popular, with the release of the C64GS, the failed consoleized C64, I think that Mm. had the two buttons. So there were some games like Last Ninja Remix that supported it and things like that. But um, yeah, you do have my interest. I will say one thing that joypads have in their favor is, of course, their durability. We've all broken plenty of joysticks on our micros playing track or field or track track and field type games and joystick wagglers. There's no risk of that with a pad, short of showing it a you know, throwing it across the room in frustration, mm-hmm. they do have durability going for them. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give it a try. I'm willing to give this protopad a try. And as I mentioned earlier, it was the, the Competition Pro was the joystick for me. In terms of pads, I always got on pretty well with the Sega Mega Drive pad. I thought that was a good size. I was I was happy with that. The, the Super Nintendo didn't quite sit in my hand quite as well as the, the Mega Drive. How about you? Did you have a favorite one? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, as far as joystick joysticks go, I, I've always preferred you know an arcade style stick that can sit on the table mm-hmm. and that you can you can you can press the buttons and move the stick with your hand as it's set on the table rather than one that you sit in your hand just because of fatigue issues. You know, everybody lauds the Epix XJ five hundred, which I believe has a different name in England. Uh, it is that that small black and red handheld joystick oh, that yeah. has the micro switches. Yeah. The Speed King, um, I think it the is. The Speed King, that's yeah. right, the Conic Speed King. Um, 
uh, that one, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's a good stick, but any stick that requires you to press the fire button by squeezing your index finger, if you're playing any sort of a game that requires you to fire often, you're going to be worn out before before you get done. So I like the arcade-style joysticks. Um, as far as control pads go, I understand what you're saying about the Mega Drive controller sitting in your hand well, but for me, the SNES will always be the king of the hill because it introduced those the two shoulder buttons Plus the D-pad is just, you know, it's 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 rock solid. There's a reason why as soon as that patent ran out on the D-pad, you saw this flood of third-party controllers in the past couple of years with, with quality D-pads. Because uh, once you're used to that Nintendo cross-style D-pad, using another sort always just seemed like it was it was not as good. You will die on that Nintendo hill, John. I know you I will. <laughs> <laughs> so the the protopad is is crowdfunded. How's that going? Is it looking likely to hit target? Well, you know, they're, they're doing crowdfunding through their site rather than going the, the Kickstarter or Indiegogo route. And, of course, that means more money for them because nobody's taking a cut. But I got to be honest with you, Neil. I think that this was a bad idea because it, it took me a while to even find the donation page. And um, it, it looks a little bit shady. It's not something that, um, you know, would necessarily encourage me to throw money into just because whenever you're on a, a per, uh, you know, platform like Kickstarter, that's not to say that there are no, you know, horrible Kickstarter campaigns that steal your money, but at least you're familiar with that, that platform and, and you can read, you know, you can sort of see the terms as they're laid out with this. It's just like a gray donate button that leads into nothingness. And so I probably would have done that part different. Um, They've managed to raise about half of the 5,000 euros they need to kick off production. And I looked at this a couple of days ago, so it's possible they might have made some progress since then. Um, they've got some stretch goals, too. Uh, if they reach uh, 10,000 euros, the developers of Sam's Journey will create a new version of the game with multi-button support. And at the 15 and 20,000 mark, so this is like, you know, uh, more than 10 times, what, or I'm sorry, more than five times what they're asking for, uh, they will create new paddles and a new joystick so the you know not only can you have the best uh joy pad that's ever been created possibly the best paddles and the best joystick so i wish them all the luck in the world uh, if any of our listeners end up backing this project or if you'll never defect from the joystick on your micros let us know in our show subreddit 30 years ago this week, John, Commander Keen Invasion of the Vorticons was released, the, the series of games uh, by Apogee Software, or published by Apogee Software, and it was a watershed moment in the history of PC gaming, as this was really the first game to bring the super smooth scrolling seen on the consoles, inspired by the likes of the Mario games, to the PC. We just hadn't seen a platformer with this buttery smooth scrolling on the platform before. This game is a result of John Carmack's programming efforts, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, John, did Commander Keen change your gaming life? Not at all, Neil. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Commander Keen was not even on my radar. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about 1990 here. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, these games have always reminded me of, of an alternate future of platformers. You know, if Nintendo hadn't basically modernized the genre with Super Mario Brothers and the way that it handled scrolling and, and level design and all this stuff, uh, this this might have been, you know, the, the, the future for everyone. I can see how someone who grew up playing, you know, exclusively with micros, playing games like Manic Miner and Gianna Sisters, seeing that these games is a great leap forward. But 
let's be honest, anybody who spent five minutes with a, uh, a NES and Super Mario Brothers 3, which came out the same year that Commander Keen did in the States, uh, they would immediately think about Commander Keen as, as a regression. Um, I did play Apogee games on the PC, though. Uh, they were widely available on those, you know, 100 shareware games for $5 CDs that you could get almost anywhere in the early to mid-90s. But of course, this is after, this is the next generation of PC gaming after Commander Keen. Um, I remember being extremely impressed with a game called Raptor Call of the Shadows, which was a vertical shooter. And of course, Duke Nukem 3D. Of course, Duke Nukem, yeah. Yeah, I I was an Amiga owner in 1990, so I was enjoying hardware-assisted scrolling on our games thanks to the custom chips in there, Uh, just like the the consoles. Even as an Amiga owner, though, I would look at the previous generation of consoles like the NES and just see how smooth the scrolling was on that. It did such a great job. Um, and on the Amiga, there were, of course, plenty of stinkers, but there were games that proved when it was programmed well, the Amiga was perfectly capable of smooth side-scrolling, uh, side-scrolling platformers. Uh, but the PC was a different story. The breakthrough that Commander Keen heralded with smooth scrolling um, on the EGA video video standard. So we're still in a period of, of magentas here. I hate to say mm-hmm. it, but that's the standout color for me when I look at this game, magenta. Sure. What John Carmack found was that by using some of the EGA hardware features in, in quite a novel way, he could identify and redraw only parts of the screen that needed updating as opposed to the entire screen with every frame. And he called this method adaptive tile refresh because it was only refreshing the tiles Um, you know, because the background is made up of a tile set. It was only refreshing the tiles that were flagged as having updated during that frame of the game. So that that was the breakthrough. That's how he got it so smooth. So having perfected the technique, the team of John Carmack and John Romero, who of course would become id Software, they actually recreated the entire Super Mario Brothers 3 game in in the hope of impressing (laughs) Nintendo. And what they wanted to do was get the license to, to release the game on PC. And do you think Nintendo were going to let that happen? <laughs> of, course no. of course not. They were <laughs> never going to let that happen. You know, they wanted complete control of the whole experience and that encompassed the whole the hardware. That wasn't going to happen on the PC. So um, it was a big fat no from Nintendo. So the team created this three-part Commander Keen series using the technology that they'd come up with and they released it through Apogee Software. And whether this game stands out for you or not, It's the game that gave the team enough royalty checks to encourage them to give up their day jobs. Uh, They formed id Software. They went on to create the likes of Doom, Quake, and all of the other amazing games and technologies that they're so well known for. So Commander Keen certainly has earned its place in the history books. John, armed with that knowledge, are you tempted to go and give Commander Keen a try? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll definitely go back and play it. I've, I've, I've taken a look at some footage of this. I think that LGR has done a lot with Commander Keen. Yeah, I know that he was yeah. a, sort of an, an, an early DOS gamer. And it, it really reminds me a lot of um, the side-scrolling platforms that were on the Game Boy. I think that the Game Boy and these early you know, PCs shared uh, a, you know, a similar architecture in terms of the way that they handled scrolling. Um, and if I, if I go back and I play it with that in mind, then it becomes, you know, 
not, I wouldn't say more tolerable because I can tolerate almost anything, but it, it becomes more enjoyable. And also, of course, knowing about the programming techniques that were used to make a game like this possible makes it a fun experience, too. Um, there's a DOS front end that I just discovered called ExoDOS, Neil, and uh, it's supposed to be the absolute bee's knees for emulating old CGA and EGA games. So when I get that up and running, this will be one of the first games I'll try. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of trickery going on with this game because it's one of the games that when I try to put it through my capture system, it just goes haywire. It doesn't like it at all. So yeah, DOS systems and capture cards with the different refresh rates and everything like that. It's just it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're tempted to try out a bit of video game history, assuming you weren't all over this game at the time of release, it's actually as easy as firing up Steam, where you can you can buy the whole series for two pounds ninety nine here in the UK. I'm 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 sure it's available for a similarly budget Codemasters price in your region or you can take the route that John suggested there with Exodos but um you know £2.99 it's pretty easy to fire up Steam and get that running without problems if you want to try it out. Well Neil as news that comes as a surprise to no one attendance has been what you call uh flat at theme parks for the past six months or so. Um, it's it's really hard for me to imagine going back. The long lines, uh, the expensive food. But most of all, it's just that huge crush of people that society has been telling us to assiduously avoid. Uh, that They're all going to be there too. Uh, so our friends in the land of the rising sun are looking towards that future. And it's not a future as far off as you might think. Uh, subreddit use it. Subreddit user Pajaco6502 just let us know that Super Nintendo World, a themed section of Universal Studios Osaka, is planning to open on February 15th, 2021. So that's like two months away. Now, before we get into the park itself, let's just talk a moment about that decision. February, like I said, is two months off. Uh, Neil, will you be ready to go back to the theme parks by then? I can't see that happening, John. Japan is actually in the midst of a a second peak looking at the charts. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we'll have achieved that fabled herd immunity through vaccinations within two months, (laughs) maybe 12 months. Uh, Maybe if everything goes to plan, we'll we'll reach that point. Uh, I'd hazard a guess at. But um, yeah, I'm going to pass on 10 hours in a flying cylinder with 200 other people at this time, John, if if that's okay. But, (laughs) you know, fast forward. So when I do want to make the trip, tell me what awaits me at, at Super Nintendo Land. And do you enter it by jumping down a big green pipe? Well, <laughs> I, I, I hope that's the case. That has not been revealed yet, but it, it's about what you'd expect. Uh, all of the classic Nintendo IPs will be present. There'll be a, a Donkey Kong jungle area, Bowser's Castle, and of course, that immortal legend, Captain Toad. What? Uh, that's right, Neil. You know you want some Captain Toad action in oh, your yeah. theme park. <laughs> anyway, the highlight of the park is looking like a new roller coaster called Mario Kart Koopa's Challenge. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is this ride called Koopa's Challenge? The Koopas are those lame little turtles that you destroy with one stop. Well, Neil, and as a Nintendo fan, I'm somewhat ashamed that I didn't know this, but Bowser's name in Japan is actually Koopa. So it's a total, you know, Dr. Eggman, Dr. Robotnik situation going on over there. Anyway, Koopa's Challenge combines a traditional roller coaster experience with AR 
and something called projection mapping technology. I'm not quite sure what that means, but that's that's what the press release says. Now, Neil, I've seen the Mario Cap style headsets that they're expecting people to wear. And unless this roller coaster is of the ultra lame variety, uh, I envision a lot of these expensive headsets uh, ending up on the grass underneath the loop, if you know what I'm saying. Now, Neil, of course, this makes a ton of business sense, but it's obvious that the powers that be did not consult the video game heavyweights of the 80s British computer scene when theming their new amusement land. Uh, in an alternate reality where UK, the UK dominated over Japan in video game supremacy, which 80s uh, Specky or Amstrad or Amiga characters would you like to see a theme park built around? In an alternate reality, that is the reality to me. That is the reality. Is I'm the sorry. Reality. Yeah, and a, and a, and a hat, a Mario hat, also doubles as a great lunch catcher if your stomach can't handle the roller coaster. So, um, Ooh. yeah, check that hat before putting it on would be my advice. So. But um, yeah, the eight-bit British micro theme park would need to really leverage the big hitters. So we'd have Hungry Horace. We'd have Roland from the Amstrad games, and of course, we'd have to have Minor Willy. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he'd be the big attraction. So I think if we can get those three to sign a contract, we can make it pretty big. It can be like the Epcot Center at Disney. You know, they have each of the, the different countries so they could each have their own world around uh, whatever we're going to call this this park. Horace World, yeah. there could be a Roland World and, of course, Willy World. I like all of those except the last one. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, John? Maybe some 16-bit candidates for their own world. Um, Who would you go with you know, I thought about this a lot, and I think I'm going to go with Zool. I mean, let's face it. Zool is not the best game or the coolest character, but man, I could rock a Zool mask AR headset. I think that would let, that would look super svelte on me. Uh, plus, in Zool World, there'd just be candy everywhere. Just wherever you look, there's 8 billion pieces of candy that you can pick up. Yeah, so well, who doesn't want that? Wasn't it? Chuffa Chups in Zool. <laughs> yeah, Chuffa Chups, right. So... Listeners, uh, what are your thoughts on Super Nintendo World? Uh, if you're booking a trip over to Osaka, or if you're just biding your time until Horace Land breaks ground just outside of Upton Snodsbury, be sure and leave us a comment and let us know. Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash this week in retro to put a tip in the jar help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice and subscribing to the this week in retro youtube channel we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech